I am Thomas Solomon, and you are listening to the VO2 Podcast. Despite what we do, and don't yet know, about fatigue, its signs and symptoms, and how to resist it, there is one mystifying phenomenon. There is always something left in the tank, even when you're slowing down. To help understand that, I've got something about crocodiles, Yoda, and a little bit about a concept called critical speed. Stay with me to hear more as I wrap up this series on fatigue in runners. If you hadn't drunk any water for hours before a race, had been sweating volumes and were thirsty on the start line, then your race day detonation might be attributed to dehydration and or sodium loss. If you were in a state of low carbohydrate availability prior to and during the race, then your race day detonation might be attributed to glycogen depletion and or hypoglycemia. If it was hot and you started with an elevated core temperature and didn't use any pre-race and or during race cooling strategies, then your race day detonation might be caused by heat stress. If you had been under heavy work stress or life stress leading into the race, or your travel to the race was a Frodo-like epic, then your race day detonation might be attributed to cognitive fatigue. If you started out way too fast and detonated hard, your race day detonation might be due to your insane lack of pacing judgement. And if the race was much further or much more technical than you were used to and or prepared for, then your race day detonation might be attributed to a lack of physical condition. As you now know, Darth Vader, the Sith Lord of Fatigue, comes in many forms. Yet, there's one part of your race day performance that's seemingly immune to the dark side. Imagine this scenario. You've had a hard week of training, a horribly stressful week at work, your newborn has kept you up every night demanding, feed me, and now you are coming to the end of a three-hour morning run. You didn't eat breakfast before the run. You haven't eaten since dinner the night before. It's roasting hot, and you haven't drunk anything since you left home. Your legs are trashed, you feel horrible, and want to stop. But all of a sudden, out of left field, a hungry crocodile swings out of the trees and starts chasing you. What do you do? Sprint! Motivation is high. You believe you can beat the crocodile. You can easily resist fatigue. Survival is your priority. Primarily so you can grow old and be an annoying parent to your teenage kid, cracking endless dag jokes in front of their mates in retribution for them destroying your sleep many moons prior. It's a very weird phenomenon, but there's always something left in the tank. Yes, 
your brain probably slows you down during exercise to protect your body from irreversible damage. But your brain probably also slows you down to keep something in reserve. To evade hungry tree-dwelling crocodiles. Being able to tap into this reserve is golden for race day success. That's all I want to say about crocodiles, but how much fun is it to engage in a sprint for the line? It's incredible to watch. I challenge anyone to go watch Haile Gebrselassie and Paul Turgat jousting for 10,000 metre gold at the Sydney Olympics, or Kelly Holmes battle to win 800 and 1500 metre gold in Athens and not get excited. No doubt you've had your own tussles. Like you, I've had my own fair share of race line battles. My most memorable was in Reykjavik many moons ago against a German dude who had shorter short shorts, a more valiant warface and a mightier crocodile evading sprint, eventually pipping me for the win. But in these epic battles, who wins? Is it the athlete who is least fatigued? The athlete with the highest VO2 max? The athlete with the fastest velocity at VO2 max? The athlete with the fastest critical speed? The athlete with the greatest ability to work above their critical speed? The athlete with the highest maximum speed? The athlete with the highest speed in reserve? The athlete who is most motivated and has the greatest self-belief? Or the athlete with all of these attributes? To keep it simple, I will say that it is complicated. But first up, your mind is a powerful tool during a sprint for the win. As Yoda, the most powerful Jedi Master of the Fatigue Resistance once said, Mmm, do or do not, there is no try. Earlier in this series, I discussed how slowing down, fatigue, is influenced by a complex interaction of your level of effort, your RPE, i.e. how easy or hard it feels, the hazard of effort versus how far is left, your enjoyment of the effort, how good or bad it feels, your motivation to maintain the effort, and your belief that you can maintain the effort. At the end of a race, in a sprint for the line, your effort is high, RPE is 10 out of 10, and there is no hazard because the race will be over in less than a minute. So to answer why is there always something in the tank for the final sprint, it is logical to argue that your success comes down to your enjoyment of the race, your motivation to push beyond, and your self-belief that you can succeed in achieving your goal, which could be a position, medal or time. If the effort feels bad, you will not unleash the beast. If you are not motivated to ride the wave of pain, you will not unleash the beast. If you do not believe you are fast enough, you will not unleash the beast. In studies where athletes exercise at a fixed intensity for an hour or more, with repeated maximal sprints sprinkled in along the way, the maximal power of each successive sprint typically deteriorates with time. Some, although not all, such studies 
show that trained athletes are sometimes able to up the power of that final sprint. However, such studies have told the subjects exactly what is coming, how many sprints they have left and how long they've been riding. Under such conditions, it is highly likely that the maximal sprints during the ride are not actually maximal because the subjects may be knowingly or subconsciously holding something back for the very final sprint of the session. Despite that possibility, studies that find athletes able to unleash a little extra bit of large for the final sprint also find that the otherwise deteriorating brain-to-muscle electrical signal measured by EMG also rises for that final sprint, i.e. there is always something left in the tank and it can come from the brain. To put this in a real-life context, the final sprint for the line unleashed by competitors in all events, even events like cycling where intermediate sprints are commonplace, gives massive support for a major role of your brain in fatigue during exercise. Why? Because audiovisual feedback allows you to know the end is coming, prompting you to dig deep into your reserves and metaphorically empty the tank. Accordingly, visually impaired athletes, for example, need their guides to tell them when the finish is approaching to trigger their final surge for the line. So yes, your brain is a powerful tool that processes lots of internal and external inputs to understand what is going on and what to do next. But we must never forget that our level of effort, RPE, during exercise is driven by a combination of our current pace, speed or power output, the external load metrics, and how well conditioned physically, psychologically and emotionally we are to deal with it. So we cannot ignore that our effort level also involves our physiological attributes. Your physiology is an equally powerful tool for the sprint for the line. In 2010, when Sam Marcora and Walter Steinano published their findings that maximal sprint power was reduced from about 1,000 to 730 watts following a high-intensity ride to failure at about 240 watts, equivalent to 80% of riders' peak power output, 302 watts. One thing was intriguing. Maximal power output following the ride to failure was still three times higher than the power output subjects could no longer ride at, 731 compared to 242 watts. In other words, when exhausted, we can still produce a huge amount of power, should we so choose. There is always something left in the tank, although perhaps it's a different tank. One obvious limitation of Makora and Stiano's work is the lack of a control trial, meaning that we don't know if the maximal power at the second sprint was lowered simply because there was a prior maximal sprint, i.e. was the between sprint ride to exhaustion necessary. But another important and highly relevant limitation 
is that the subjects were merely regular folks and not trained athletes. Their maximal power was only 1,075 watts. Their peak aerobic power was only 302 watts. And they only managed to ride for about 10 minutes at 80% of their peak aerobic power. Why am I saying only? Because during a race, an endurance-trained athlete will far exceed these values. In the interest of fun, we can mine Mathieu van der Poel's data on Strava. He is a pro cyclist with a current peak aerobic power of 524 watts. That's huge. En route to winning the 2022 edition of Ronde van Vlaanderen, the Tour of Flanders, a couple of weeks ago, he rode at an average power output of 338 watts for six and a half hours producing a maximal power output of 1,406 watts. That's a lot of Vanderpools. Yes, the force is strong with trained athletes. But an important question emerges. Is a trained athlete immune to the maximal power losing effect of prolonged hard exercise? And if so, can that immunity aka fatigue resistance, help us understand who wins in a race for the line. In cycling, there is a metabolic concept known as critical power, which is a sustainable level of power output in joules per second, aka watts, above which you fatigue, slow down, rapidly. You can think of critical power as a kind of metabolic fatigue threshold. The amount of energy, joules, available to spend above your critical power is called W prime, which is a small, rapidly depletable amount of energy you can use for giving it large for short durations. For want of a better phrase, you can think of W prime as your anaerobic work capacity. But more accurately, W prime is your capacity to work above critical power. To estimate your critical power and W prime, just like any performance tests, you would perform them in a well-rested state. But it is important to know that prolonged cycling decreases critical power and W prime even in elite cyclists. Furthermore, being able to resist this deterioration is what separates world-class from sub-elite athletes. Better performing athletes have more large left to give at the end of a long race. So, at the top of world-class endurance performance, where physiological traits are pretty similar among athletes, they all have a high VO2 max, a high efficiency or economy, and a high critical power it is likely that fatigue resistance of these variables is what separates the champions from the losers. But it's a little more complicated than that. Why? Because we know that tactics and pacing influence your fatigue resistance. I just mentioned that in cycling there are concepts known as critical power and W prime. The bipedal equivalents in running are critical speed and D prime, 
your critical speed is a sustainable velocity, measures in meters per second, that is considered a fatigue threshold because when running faster than your critical speed, sustainable effort becomes unsustainable and you slow down rapidly. Meanwhile, D prime is a short, depletable amount of total distance in meters over which you can give it large when running faster than your critical speed. To keep things simple, you can think of D prime as how much rapid fuel you have in the tank for a maximal burst of giving it large to the line at the end of a race. Just like W prime in cycling, D prime in running is kind of an aerob anaerobic work capacity, or more accurately, your capacity to work above your critical speed. Please note that the word anaerobic is always misleading in these concepts because it implies that no oxygen is being used to produce energy, which is not correct. During short to medium duration, high intensity races, for example, up to about 10 kilometers, a lot of oxygen is being used at a rate so high that you will have reached your VO2 max, and therefore any additional energy required to go faster has to come from non-oxygen requiring, aka non-oxidative, pathways such as phosphocreatine or glycolysis. Don't worry if you find these jargony terms confusing, I will go deep on the critical speed concept very soon. But to help bring clarity right now, let's give these jargony terms some running related context. When racing very short endurance events, like a mile or an 800 meters, anaerobic speed reserve, your capacity for speed above your velocity at VO2 max, is critical for success. In such races, you're running way faster than your critical speed and depleting your D prime rapidly, leaving no or very little large in the tank for the end. Therefore, you typically can't speed up in the sprint for the line in an 800 meter or one mile race. And it often becomes more about who slows down the least rather than who speeds up the most. On the flip side, when racing a 10K, you're probably running ever so slightly above your critical speed and therefore ever so gradually depleting your D prime, leaving some large in the tank to speed up in a burst for the line. In both scenarios, whether it be 800 meters, one mile or 10K, the clock is ticking until the D prime tank is empty. Right, but how do these constructs, critical speed and D prime, help determine who wins the final sprint for the line? A 2021 study from Brett Kirby and colleagues analysed data from athletes competing in the men's 5,000 and 10,000 metre races at the 2017 World Athletics Championships in London. The two races were pretty distinct. The 5,000 metres had a winning time of 13.32. was a relatively slow race with a big pack of runners jostling at the bell and a mighty fight for the medals whereas the 10,000 metres had a winning time of 26.49, was a fast race from the gun with a smaller bunch left with one lap to go. These distinct outcomes were useful, 
because the different race strategies and presence versus absence of mid-race surges caused a large range of D-prime depletion among the runners. In other words, the variable race tactics left athletes with different amount of large left to unleash in their bid for the world title on the final lap. And this was important because using recent race results, Kirby and colleagues calculated each athlete's critical speed and D-prime to try to predict who should have won the respective events based on their metabolic capacity. What did they find? Athletes' critical speed was correlated with race finish position in the 10,000 metres, R squared equals 0.38, but not the 5,000 metres, R squared equals 0.04. Meanwhile, the total amount of distance athletes had available for giving it large, D prime, was not correlated with race finish position. Hmm, well that's a bit boring. The data indicate that having a higher critical speed than your competitors may help. But the R-squared value of 0.38 means that just 38% of the variance in finish position order in the 10,000 metres was explained by critical speed. Meanwhile, the data also indicate that the total D-prime available, the total amount of large you have to give, seems not to matter. But the analytical approach of examining the role of athletes' total D-prime, their amount of large in the tank when they towed the start line, ignores athletes' pacing strategies during the race. This is why the authors also examined the role of how much large athletes had left when they heard the bell for the final lap. The authors essentially asked, what did athletes have left in the tank when all the fast starts and mid-race surges had occurred and therefore they had frequently danced above their critical speed, depleting D-prime. This is where the importance of tactics and pacing become clear. It turned out that the finishing order in both the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meter races was best predicted by who had the most D-prime left when they began the sprint for home with 400 metres to go. R squared equals 0.95 in the 5,000 metres and 0.94 in the 10,000 metres. These are impressive correlation coefficients, since an R squared of 1 is a perfect relationship. Consequently, these findings help reiterate what I said earlier. Better performing athletes have more large left to give for longer at the end of a long race. If you've followed this series, you've learned that during a race, your RPE will steadily steadily rise to reach your maximal tolerable RPE. You also learned that starting out too fast will accelerate the rise in RPE making you reach your maximal tolerable RPE sooner. Excellent pacing judgment is essential, and you must time your final surge very carefully, otherwise Lord Fader, the Sith Lord of Fatigue, may come for you before the finish line. The study I just described further emphasises this point 
by showing us that world-class runners who spent more time above their critical speed early in the race had less D-prime in the tank available for the final sprint for the line. Would better pacing have helped them? Probably. But we can't be sure because, because Doc's DeLorean can't take the athletes back to rerun the 2017 World Champs finals. What is certain is that when your RPE is rising towards your maximal tolerable effort level, you want it to feel good rather than bad. A wise pacing strategy can certainly help with that. I have hundreds of anecdotal observations from myself and my athletes when a high RPE hurt like hell after starting out like a space rocket and eventually running the same race time as a previous occasion when starting out with less haste and the same level of during race effort felt amazing. Fun anecdotes that teach us a lot. What can you add to your Sprint for the Lion toolbox? Maximal sprint speed, velocity at VO2 max, speed reserve and your capacity above critical speed, D prime, are all physiological determinants of your sprint for the line. But being endowed with the motivation to push hard and the belief that you can win will also influence how much large you can unleash at the end of a race. All the while, your pacing strategy is another physiological determinant of what you will have left in the tank when it comes for the sprint for the line. But your choice of pacing strategy is also influenced by your psychology and emotions, i.e. how motivated and emotionally intelligent are you to run your own race. As I said at the beginning, it is complicated. To ensure you always have something left in the tank and are successful with your race day sprint for the line, you need many skills. You need endurance, you need speed, you need motivation and self-belief. You need tactical savvy and a generous portion of emotional intelligence. But wise coaches and athletes already knew these things. If you didn't, now you do. No matter what explains why there is always something left in the tank, one thing is for sure. Next time a hungry crocodile swings out of the trees and starts chasing you, always give it large. Until that time, stay nerdy and keep empowering yourself to be the best athlete you can be by training smart. Thanks for joining me for another session. If you find value in my posts, please help keep them alive by sharing them on social media and buying me a beer at buymeacoffee.com forward slash thomas.solomon. For more knowledge, join me at Thomas PJ Solomon on Twitter, follow at VO2 on Facebook and Instagram, subscribe to my free email updates at vo2.com forward slash subscribe, and visit vo2.com to check out my other articles, nerd alerts, and free training plans, and my train smart code. I occasionally mention brands and products. But it is important to know that I am not sponsored by or receiving advertisement royalties from anyone. 
I have conducted biomedical research for which I have received research money from publicly funded national research councils and medical charities, and also from private companies, including Novo Nordisk Foundation, AstraZeneca, Amelin, the AP Muller Foundation, and the Augustinus Foundation. These companies had no control over the research design, data analysis, or publication outcomes of my work. Any recommendations I make are, and always will be, based on my own views and opinions shaped by the evidence available. The information I provide is not medical advice. Before making any changes to your habits of daily living based on any information I provide, always ensure it is safe for you to do so and consult your doctor if you are ever unsure.